0: Good morning, and welcome. I'm Emily Wilson, the producer of WTBU's News Brunch. Today, again, we are coming to you from around the world, as opposed to our typical studio in Boston. In these times, we must do the best with what we have, and fortunately, we have the technology to carry on this show for you. With that, here is WTBU's News Brunch.
1: No breakfast, no worry. It's News Brunch from Boston University.
2: Good morning and welcome to this edition of the WTBU News Brunch. I'm Hannah Harn in Seal Beach, California.
3: And I'm Frank Hernandez in Caguas, Puerto Rico. Topping WTBU news at this hour.
2: The Tokyo Olympics are being officially postponed due to the coronavirus pandemic. This morning, the International Olympic Committee and Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe say the Tokyo Olympics will now take place no later than summer 2021, but will still be called the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. There had been mounting pressure to call off the Games for weeks, and some countries had even pulled out. Australia Olympic Committee head Matt Carroll said that postponing the Games to 2021 is the right move.
4: We're in times which are hardly certain, and we have to provide certainty to our athletes and our sports. Last Thursday was a different set of circumstances when standing here today. I mean, over the weekend, there's been dramatic change in our own country and across the world.
2: The Olympics is just the latest in a long list of things being shut down thanks to coronavirus.
3: That's right, Hannah. 20 U.S. states have stay-at-home orders, all varying in scope. California Governor Gavin Newsom has strictly limited California's ability to socialize, and Virginia Governor Ralph Northam announced yesterday that their public schools would be closing.
5: Today,
4: I'm directing all schools in Virginia to remain closed at least through the end of this academic year.
2: The Philippine Congress has approved a bill declaring a national emergency. They are also authorizing the president to launch an $18 million aid plan for families and to tap private hospitals and ships to help fight the outbreak. Belgian hairdressers have called on the government to close salons as they've closed other businesses. Hairdressers can receive a nearly 1,300 euro stipend during the crisis.
3: Back in the U.S., Texas Governor Greg Abbott has moved to ban all non-medically necessary abortions during the outbreak stating they do not qualify as essential surgeries. The issue has also flared in Ohio. Last week, clinics received orders to end all non-essential surgical abortions. And maybe a glimmer of good news. Stocks surged as Wall Street opened this morning on hopes that Congress will reach a decision on a coronavirus relief bill and possible stimulus package. At this hour, the Dow is up 7.55%.
2: All eyes are on the United States Senate to see if they can finally agree on a corona spending deal. The proposal will support those affected by layoffs and unemployment during the virus outbreak. Yesterday's vote on a $2 trillion virus aid package failed. And Maryland Senator Chris Van Hollen says that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell should have waited until a more firm agreement was reached. He
1: chose to hold that vote knowing it would fail. That is a self-inflicted wound on the United States Senate and on the American people at this moment.
2: Democrats are pushing for a plan that better supports workers and health care providers, while Republicans have put priority on supporting corporations and their industries. And while both sides of the aisle disagree on what the next move should be, President Donald Trump says that representatives should work together to help American workers. Must
6: go quickly. It's not really a choice to have a choice to have to make a deal. This should not be a time for political agendas, but rather one for focusing solely and squarely on the needs of the American people. We are going to save American workers and we're going to save them quickly.
2: The public health officials have urged caution and focusing on containing the virus by pe- keeping people at home, President Trump has pushed for a stronger focus on an economic revival and reopening stores and businesses as soon as possible.
6: We cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself. We're not going to let the cure be worse than the problem.
2: Like much of the rest of the world, last night the British government instituted a lockdown across the whole country. WTBU London correspondent Catherine Swindles is there.
7: This morning, the United Kingdom woke up to the first day of lockdown. Boris Johnson told the public in an address last night, no leaving the house except to buy essential groceries and take care of vulnerable people. Only designated key workers, such as healthcare workers, food delivery drivers, or police can go to work. You can leave the house once per day to go on a run or a walk, but only with members of your own household. You
4: should not be meeting friends if your friends asked you to meet, you should say no. You should not be meeting family members who do not live in your home. You should not be going shopping except for essentials like food and medicine. And you should do this as little as you can.
7: They tried to do this voluntarily. This weekend there was anger at images of busy parks and beaches across the country as cafes, pubs and restaurant closures sent people to the outdoors. Snowdonia National Park in Wales released a statement saying that they had its busiest visitor day in living memory and that the crowds made it, quote, impossible to maintain effective social distancing. But now the government has made it clear that this will not be allowed.
4: If you don't follow the rules, the police will have the powers to enforce them, including through fines and dispersing gatherings.
7: This comes as a relief to many who are growing frustrated at a lack of clarity from the government guidance. The data so far has shown London tracking almost exactly two weeks behind Italy but people wonder if the confusion in the government may have worsened London's situation. Eleanor Melbourne, who lives in Oxfordshire and works in project management for the National Health Service, hopes that the lockdown will help people understand and follow the NHS guidelines on social distancing, especially those who don't read the news so much. Until
8: kind of yesterday, when we
7: We've got some very clear guidance on a lockdown, I think it was a bit ambiguous um, for a lot of people. I think the only difference that the
1: lockdown's making is giving people a clearer idea of what they should shouldn't be doing.
7: Um, so I think, yeah, in terms of, like, getting that communication out, I think it's absolutely necessary. Jack Williamson, a politics student at the University of Sheffield, thinks that the government's delay strategy has been good up until now. And although he supports a lockdown... He's nervous about the power it gives the government and Prime Minister Boris Johnson over the people.
4: I actually think, in a lot of ways, it's quite sensible. I think it's given people time to adapt, it's given people time to adjust their lives. But I would be a little bit worried with some of the uh, new emergency laws that I looking to introduce. I'd be worried if perhaps Johnson was looking at this as like a political opportunity.
7: Johnson has said that the lockdown will be reassessed in three weeks, but for now there is no telling. WTV News on Capitol Hill in
3: London. Pandemonium hit the supermarkets of Puerto Rico this past weekend after widespread rumors on social media said there would be a shortage of food due to the island's shelter in place and overnight curfew. Puerto Rico Governor Juan Navasquez was quick to deny those rumors on a Facebook live stream, scolding those who spread the rumors and calling irresponsible those who violated the shelter in place. Adriana Melendez, a college student in Puerto Rico affected by the coronavirus says that the people should be united in following the curfew.
1: Well, I think it's very irresponsible. We're all being affected by this in some way or another, and there are people who are
3: literally not being paid because of this. Puerto Rico has currently 39 confirmed cases of coronavirus and two deaths. Effective at noon today, Governor Charlie Baker's stay-at-home directive goes into effect. Massachusetts residents are being told to keep contact to a minimum without instilling a full shelter in place. WTV correspondent Ina Joseph has the story in Boston.
9: By this afternoon, all non-essential businesses in Massachusetts will be closed as a result of the stay-at-home advisory issued by Governor Baker
1: and the Department of Public Health. Many businesses locally grown and owned by our neighbors and friends are the businesses most unlikely to be able to put in place remote or telework policies. But I also know that by taking this action now, we can significantly improve our position in this fight to slow the spread of this virus.
9: The order will remain in effect until Tuesday, April seventh. Baker stressed that essential businesses, including supermarkets, pharmacies, gas stations, manufacturers of medical supplies and pharmaceuticals, and medical marijuana facilities will remain open. Only medical research facilities conducting critical studies of coronavirus will stay open as well. This includes Moderna Inc. located in Cambridge, Massachusetts Biotechnology Council located in Cambridge, And Boston University's very own National Emerging Infectious Disease Laboratories, along with labs conducting, quote, essential biomedical research that cannot be stopped at this time, end quote, according to a statement released by University Provost Gene Morrison earlier this week. Essential research studies include cell, plant, or animal colony maintenance, shared shared computational equipment maintenance, and any long-term experiments that would, quote, generate significant financial and data loss if not completed. These labs will stay open with a skeleton crew, which makes things difficult for undergraduates conducting research. Johanna Wathes-Potter, a senior finishing her thesis on breast cancer subtypes, has seen all of the changes unfold. One of the biggest
10: changes is that only three lab members are allowed in the lab at one time, and that really only pertains to essential lab members, so that means that anybody that isn't really necessary to be there on a daily basis, um, such as undergrads, they're not allowed to be in the lab right now. Um, So as somebody that is trying to complete a thesis project, that's not the best news.
9: Besides being unable to finish her research on site, Johanna also misses the personal component of lab work that no longer is possible with the stay-at-home advisory. This adjustment is one all BU students are going through. Since last week, students have been balancing the switch to remote classes while also having to move back home as campus is officially closed. Senior Thomas Shea has mixed feelings about BU's decision.
3: In terms of kicking everyone out of on-campus housing, I think while it was a rough decision for BU and its students, um, I feel like it was the right decision. BU maybe could have done better and maybe been more proactive um, in terms of maybe Having us move out before spring break, even obviously hindsight's 2020.
9: This is Hina Joseph in Boston for WTBU.
3: Corona has shut down a majority of colleges in the country, and most, like Boston University, have moved classes online. This does not only affect how we do things, but when and where we do them. WTBU commentator Emily Wilson says, for some students, Corona means chaos to their normal routine.
0: International students, or even students within the United States in different time zones are waking up and going to sleep at unusual hours to successfully complete their online classes via Zoom, the platform which Boston University uses for live online classes. An 8 a.m. start for a student residing in Boston is a 5 a.m. start for a student living in L.A., or even more unorthodox, 2 a.m. for students living in Hawaii. If a class goes from 8 a.m. to noon in Boston, that is the wee hours of the morning in Honolulu. We're stepping into the late night in Shanghai, where it would be 8 p.m. with finish at midnight. For some students, this may not be an issue, but with over 10,000 international students from over 135 countries, plus the many time zones throughout the US alone, online classes from remote locations are sure to be a struggle for many students. This is just one of the many issues facing students in the age of Corona. Students themselves are not in charge of decision-making and a phone call with a complaint doesn't usually resolve the problem. So some students are starting online petitions to affect change. Looking back throughout history, petitions have often led to change. A highly notable one is the women's suffrage petition of Victoria, Australia in the 19th century. But to give a more recent look at what people are currently petitioning for, I headed to the White House's official website. The site says that if a petition to the White House gains over 100,000 signatures over 30 days, it will be reviewed and given an official response. One petition that over 115,000 people have signed is to let American farmers grow hemp once again to create jobs and rebuild the rural economy. And another with over 1.1 million signatures is to immediately release Donald Trump's full tax returns with all information needed to verify emoluments clause compliance. One Boston University student has started a petition to create an optional pass-fail grading system for this very unpredictable semester. The program would allow students to decide up until the last day of classes if they wish to receive a letter grade or opt to either pass or fail the class. The petition was put in place because of the strain that online classes are causing for some students, in particular ones in different time zones. The question is, How much attention can petitions like this one really get and how effective are they? Well, this specific one that's addressed to President Brown and the Boston University administration has already gained over 4,900 electronic signatures and the administration has agreed to engage in conversation over the issue. Any engagement with the petition seems like progress, but tangible change is the desired outcome. Another petition to allow seniors to have an in-person graduation ceremony is also out there with over 2,900 signatures. And there's one with over 1,800 signatures to organize for partial refunds since students are unable to use campus facilities and experience being in the heart of Boston, which the university markets itself on. At least 45 other universities have petitions circulating on the same or similar issues. Websites like change.org make it easy to create a petition online get signatures, and stay engaged with its supporters through updates. I, for one, have signed the petition to create a pass-fail grading system at Boston University and a petition to organize partial tuition refunds to students. Have you? For Boston University News, I'm Emily Wilson, and that is my opinion.
3: The United States is cutting $1 billion in aid to Afghanistan and is threatening even more. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo paid a visit to Kabul Monday to meet with political rivals Ashraf Ghani and Abdullah Abdullah. The two Afghan politicians both declared themselves the president after last year's election. Pompeo said their inability to work together posed a, quote, direct threat to U.S. national interests and that the administration would begin an immediate review of all its support programs for Afghanistan. Ironically, the Taliban are the only part that is cooperating with the U.S. in the peace deal.
2: Pacific Gas and Electric will plead guilty for 84 counts of involuntary manslaughter in 2018's Camp Fire in California. The fire destroyed three Northern California towns and has led the utility company to bankruptcy. The plea agreement marks the second time this decade that the company has been indicted on criminal charges. PG&E was previously convicted on six felony counts following a natural gas explosion that killed eight people in San Bruno, California in 2010. While no one from PG&E will go to prison, its plea agreement calls from the company to pay a $4 million fine.
3: Residents of Lawrence-Andover and North Andover, who were affected by the Merrimack Valley gas explosions in September of 2018, will soon be receiving compensation for their suffering. Payments from the Class Action Columbia Gas Settlement have been expedited as a result of economic downfall from the coronavirus. The first round of payments will go out in mid-May. The plaintiff's co-lead counsel, attorney Frank Patosa, explains the value of this settlement for residents.
4: The benefit of the settlement is it gives residents and businesses the opportunity to submit claims for losses that they have not been compensated for to date by Columbia Gas. Columbia Gas spent over a billion dollars in, in, in restoring uh, damage caused to homes and businesses, uh, both in, in, by fires and explosion, damage caused to appliances, uh, expenses that people incurred when they were displaced from their homes, and things like that. The, the settlement provides residents the opportunity to submit a, a lump sum claim. It's a very simple one-page one, one page claim form if they were compensated by Columbia Gas for certain matters, but they were not compensated for, though, in essence, the impact this had on their day-to-day lives, the loss of use and enjoyment of their, of their home, of their residents. And that's the best part of the settlement. It's a very simple way for these residents to be able to submit a claim and be compensated for something that they might not be compensated for today. And those are the payments that will be going out uh, in light of the order that the judge entered on Friday that we requested to expedite the payments because this community has not been through a double whammy. They went through the fires and explosions, all the the subsequent impact it had on on their day-to-day lives on residents and businesses. And now, um, unfortunately, these communities are dealing with the, the effects of the coronavirus. And so we felt it was very important to get this money into the hands of the residents within Lawrence, Andover, and North Andover. So that, that was the goal of expediting the case.
3: Columbia Gas agreed to sub-operation of the gas distribution network through the Merrimack Valley to Eversource.
2: The official census day is April 1st, but data for the 2020 census has already started being collected by mail to every household in America. But in the time of the coronavirus, a lot of students are not residing where they typically would be, and that might be a problem for student-heavy states like Massachusetts. The census data gives the government a more precise count of a population of a state, which leads to how much federal funding goes to different states and their respective cities and counties. Boston is largely a college city. If thousands of students are moved out of their dorms and responses are not being recorded, a huge chunk of data will be missing, leading to a lower level of federal funding. And we'll be right back. But first, this message from the count.
6: Ah, this is my favorite time of the decade. Census? what's that? Oh, it is a special time when we count each person in every home in all the neighborhoods across the country. Uh, one. One monster of Sesame Street. <laughs> your kids count? Of course. Everyone in your home counts. Especially mm. little kids and babies. One, two, two little kids.
9: But why do we count everyone? <laughs> ah,
6: great question. Counting everyone in your home helps support your neighborhood for the next ten years by funding things like schools, hospitals, and buses. So count yourself and everyone in your home. In ten minutes, you can complete the census by calling or going online. Or return
7: your phone by mail. It's easy, secure, and most important, it's totally private. Make, Make your, your family, family count!
6: count. Uh, uh, uh.
3: <laughs> with all the news about the corona pandemic, every, everything else in the world has taken a backseat. WTVU special correspondent Sophie Eisenberg is here with a reminder that March is Women's History Month. But Sophie, instead of looking at history, you're looking at women's present and future, right?
11: Yeah, it's such a big moment of upheaval. I thought it would be interesting to see what's changing in women's lives. So one interesting bit of news that's coming out of the COVID-19 crisis, midwives have been seeing a huge uptick in requests for home births. So giving birth with a midwife is actually pretty rare in the U.S. Only about 9% of births happen that way. And most of those are in hospitals. The number of home births is closer to 1%. But actually, studies show that having access to a midwife majorly improves health outcomes for both women and babies. And since the US has the worst maternal mortality rates out of any high-income country, it could be interesting to see whether people turning to midwives now leads to more women giving birth with midwives after the crisis is over. Could end up saving a lot of lives if it does. And then on a separate note, I also thought it might that now might be a good time to see how the COVID-19 outbreak has been affecting working moms and ask whether it's been causing them to rethink anything in their daily lives. So I spoke to Radian Swanson in Charlotte, North Carolina. She's been working remotely with both of her kids at home for just over a week.
5: This was like the longest week ever in my life. I, it's essentially just me, two kids, full-time, dealing with them, making sure that not only am I getting them taken care of, but I'm dealing with my job. And um, on top of that, I'm doing this all by myself. Swanston's
11: husband is an air traffic control manager for American Airlines. So he actually has to keep going to work. That leaves her alone to essentially homeschool their two children while also working a full eight-hour day in a space that was never meant to be an office. So I'm smack in the middle of my living room trying to work, but then I have
5: Bedroom's near my living room, my, my apartment's not as soundproof, so
11: it's kind of really crazy." As stressful as this week has been for her, she says she's also noticed that having to stay indoors has helped her family bond more. So we're playing games
5: with each other, we're just really spending that quality time with each other.
11: I think I want to keep that routine going. Swanston was already leading a pretty busy life before the outbreak. Her day typically started at 6.30 a.m. and didn't end until the kids were in bed. Ironically, having the option to sometimes work remotely when things go back to normal may ease that burden.
5: I'm just really hoping that after all of this, we, we have
11: that choice. Thanks to Radiant Swanston for taking time out of her busy day to talk to us.
3: Oh, it's crazy to think that this is happening to millions of families all over the country right now.
11: Yeah, you know, and and talking to Radiance got me thinking. I mean, in her case, her family doesn't have a choice right now about who stays home with the kids and who goes to work. But the reality is that worldwide, the burden of unpaid work, like household chores and childcare already falls disproportionately on women. So in the U.S., for example, the average for women is over four hours of unpaid work a day, where for men, it's just under two and a half hours.
3: Sounds like the situation was already pretty bad. It's just being made more obvious by the coronavirus crisis.
11: Yeah, so I talked to Sally Howard about what we can do. She's a journalist in the UK who writes a lot about the barriers to women's equality, and she just published a book called The Home Stretch, Why It's Time to Come Clean about Who Does the Dishes. She mentioned some great examples from the past of how awareness raising on this issue can make a difference, like the 1974 women's strike in Iceland.
12: In October of that year, Icelandic women went on general strike. It was a day that was billed as women's day off, that to Icelandic men became known as the longest day. There are contemporary accounts of supermarkets selling out of crayons and sausages, as men desperately tried to find ways to entertain kids in their workplaces.
11: And Howard says that the strike actually contributed to making Iceland what it is today, one of the most gender equal countries in the world in terms of pay and women's representation in government. She also mentioned that Scandinavian countries are leading the way forward through government interventions. In
12: Sweden, and now in Finland, there's a tranche of parental leave that's dubbed the Daddy Quota. So basically the couple loses if the man doesn't take this allocation of leave.
11: There have been several studies now showing that when dads take paternity leave, that actually ends up resetting the household division of labor more evenly. Howard also mentioned that many people are looking to alternatives to the heterosexual nuclear family as a solution.
12: A feminist communes such as the House of Nobodies in the past, pay members for housework from a communal pot.
11: Howard says people in communal living situations and also queer couples seem to be dividing the burden of unpaid labor much more fairly. She also thinks the COVID-19 crisis might lead to social change, but it also runs the risk of forcing women back into the housewife mold. So now more than ever is a good time to be taking action on this.
12: We should remember that the two world wars ushered in breakthroughs
11: in emancipation for women. It's a moment we need to seize. That was Sally Howard, author of The home Stretch*.
3: Sounds like we should definitely be paying more attention to this as the outbreak progresses. But in the meantime, how is everybody who is going stir-crazy at home supposed to cope?
11: So I spoke to one last person. Carly Fouth is a mom who's been working from home for about 10 years now. She's the head of partnerships and marketing at Money Crashers, and she took some time to share some advice with us about how to adjust to the new work-from-home life. So normally, we'd probably tell somebody struggling with working from home to go out and socialize with friends, but since that's not an option anymore, what are the top things you think everybody should be doing to cope while they're stuck at home?
5: Just change it up. Don't just sit at your desk the whole day. You will go nuts. At your desk there's lots of different exercises you can do even while you're seated I mean there's chair yoga I mean you don't need a lot of space to do yoga just standing up from your desk even just taking a simple forward fold just feels so good just I I would just have to say move around switch locations get a new perspective look out the window something look at other If you have a pet hug your pet
11: There are a lot of parents out there who are uh, also having to juggle having kids at home while they're still working full days uh, just from home. For anybody who's kind of losing their mind out there, what do you recommend?
5: Schedule Zoom calls or um, FaceTime with your kids' friends and then talk to the parents, like even all talk together. Um, And even separately from the kids, you can all just kind of vent, talk about what you're doing with your kids, get ideas, um, think about different projects you can get them involved in i also think it's really helpful to try to um just trying to get projects where like the whole family can get involved um just something that where you all feel like you're participating in what you're doing it kills time (laughs) And, and they'll definitely learn something and maybe you'll learn something too so just try to just try to stay connected to one another and the people around you
3: thanks sophie and we'll be right back
2: As the coronavirus pandemic continues to spread, today we look back at the last global pandemic of this scale, the 1918 influenza pandemic, which hit Boston particularly hard. More than 1,000 Bostonians died, many of them soldiers returning from World War I in Europe. But there are big differences between 1918
6: and today. I think one of the first things we need to understand is the pandemic caught most people in most of the world in 1918 almost completely unaware.
2: Dr. Siddharth Chandra is a professor at the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at Michigan State University. Chandra says that quick communication has been key to clamping down on the current COVID-19 outbreak compared to the relatively slow flow of information during the 1918 influenza outbreak.
6: Uh, I think populations in 1918 um, were far less informed, uh, knew little to nothing about what was coming their way than we are today uh, with respect to the COVID-19 disease.
2: And if you don't know an outbreak is coming, you'll have a hard time getting ready to fight it. In his research on the 1918 outbreak, Chandra found that the curve of the outbreak and its impact looks surprisingly similar to what you see on the news today.
6: There's a very short and steep wave, and you see that wave kind of exceeding some kind of threshold of the public health infrastructure to deal with patients, Uh, compared to the kind of wave people are saying you would expect to see if you had social distancing. Which is a much longer but much flatter wave and one that can more easily be absorbed by our hospital beds and our public health infrastructure.
2: A big part of what might contribute to this is social distancing. Most folks today know to give each other a wide berth when they go out, but in 1918 it wasn't as common.
6: It's pretty hard evidence in some places to show that people did learn about the benefits of social distancing during the 1918 influenza pandemic. So. You know, as soon as I think municipal and county and state officials around the United States, for example, got to know about the disease and had an inkling about how it was spread, they did close down schools. They did, you know, start closing down places where large numbers of people gathered. And in that way, cutting off hotspots for the transmission of the virus.
2: And in dense cities like Boston, it can be tough to stay healthy. But major cities can also help mitigate the spread of infectious outbreaks. Dr. Richard Gunderman, a Chancellor's Professor of Medical Humanities and Health Studies at Indiana University, points to major cities, academic, and research institutions as major sources for scientific breakthrough.
1: Often, the kind of scientific and technical uh, resources that we need, uh, those are also present in large cities generally, you know, say in academic institutions or, or, or large uh, biomedical firms. So while people Cities are, on the one hand, uh, a good place for rapid transmission, rapid spread of disease, but they're also uh, among our most important resources that being being able to overcome uh, a pandemic.
2: But even as news outlets scramble to get information out there, misinformation remains a threat. Gunderman says the best thing people can do is be smart and double-check the information they consume.
1: The fact that, you know, anybody can post, so to speak, means that misinformation can be as rapidly disseminated as accurate information. But I do like to think there are a number of responsible organizations that do a good job of filtering assertions and uh, serving as reliable repositories for accurate information. Getting people good information is one of the most important resources we need to make good decisions about our lives, you know, not only as individuals, but as
3: States and as a nation. There may be a little silver lining to the pandemic. More time to catch up on that stack of books on your nightstand. TV News reporter Kendall Tamer takes a literary look at what folks are reading.
8: Now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood bedeweled halls of their rebel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. This is a famous passage from The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe a story in which a prince locks himself up in his home with his closest, richest friends to party his way through a pandemic. Boston University English professor Maurice Lee compared this to some of the things we see happening down south right now. Critic Liesl Schillinger published an article on LitHub titled What We Can Learn and Should Unlearn from Albert Camus' The Plague, about the 1940s French work La Peste. The book is about a fictional outbreak of bubonic plague in an Algerian coastal town. Similar to Lee's observations on Poe, Schillinger argues that La Peste shows how easy it is to mistake an epidemic for an annoyance. But Professor Susan Mizrucci disagrees. She believes there are more recent and relevant examples of literature that mirror our current situation like Philip Ross' 2010 work, Nemesis, a historical fiction about the polio outbreak in 1944 when people did listen to the warning signs and took the crisis seriously. And it's just
1: all about, you know, the fear and terror that all of these people in this town are going through, you know, confronting this, this disease that there is no vaccine for and no cure for and no um, no way of containing. Because everyone becomes a kind of carrier and a kind of um, threat to
8: everyone else. Ms. says that though it's all a little creepy, it's still important to keep our distance. I think
1: that's one of the things that's so scary about our moment right now is the sense that we're all threats to each other. I mean, we're such threats to each other that we're, you know, we're, we're distancing ourselves from,
8: you know, our friends. Few among us remember the 1918 flu or the polio scare of the 1950s. But Ms. Rucci encourages people to read these kinds of works to help them cope.
1: The best thing you can do is just get people to read stuff that's really great and that that will help them to deal with their experience with this, you know, really, really challenging moment that we're in. And I I think there's nothing like great literature when it comes to dealing with tough situations.
8: And many people are doing just that, using books as a way to get through isolation and social distancing. I talked to some readers to find out what books are helping them through this. Emily Becker is a Walt Disney World employee who has been at home in Orlando, Florida since they closed Epcot on March 15th. She is reading Medusa by Clive Cussler, which is a sequel in a series she's been reading for a while. She selected it because she knows the series is long and that it would give her plenty of material to fill up the time. But as she was reading, she got a surprise.
5: I just started it and funnily enough, like within the first two chapters, um, I find out that the whole premise of the book is... They're trying to stop the spread of a coronavirus, of all things, which I just thought was ridiculous. <laughs> I couldn't even believe it. I had to put the book down and walk away for, like, a full day because I just couldn't handle it because I thought it was crazy.
8: But Emily says she did return to the book, and she still plans to finish it, despite the dark irony of its plots.
5: I mean, I feel like I have faith in society. Um, and these books, I know they all end well, so it's not like I know that this book is going to end with, you know, the demise of society. Um, so I'm hoping, um, I think it'll probably make me feel better just because if this book has a happy ending, hopefully, you know, our current situation does too.
8: Orlando-based writer and actress Carolyn Ducker is currently reading Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. The story follows a traveling acting troupe and how they're living after a fictional virus pandemic has killed most of the population. But she says that the book gives her hope in the midst of this tough time.
5: People are like, oh, society is crumbling right now. It's like, no, no, no. Society will always be around. It'll just be different. Because the the greatest fear of humanity is like fear of the unknown, right? So it creates like this sense of, I guess, security in me that like, no, there's going to be a society. Like, Like, even if most of the people on the planet die out, the people who are still here will create a society. Will it be far apart from other societies? Hell yeah. But like, it'll still be there.
11: But
8: not everyone is reading about contagions. Noemi Arellano-Summer, a senior at BU, has been sent home to Long Beach, California to isolate with her family. She's reading her old favorites like The Wicker King by Kay Ancrum because she can find comfort in them. Uh, I've been rereading
1: and then I'm planning to reread favorites. So, kind of a mix of comfort and, I, you know, I know that these are good
8: stories. For me, I'm reading Always and Forever Laura Jean by Jenny Han and Where the Crawdads Sing by Delilah Owens. Now's the time to start diving into that pile on your nightstand. I know I will be. For WTBU News, I'm Kendall Tamer in Plattsburgh, New York.
3: The last few weeks have been pretty stressful for Boston University students. However, Liquid Fun, one of BU's improv comedy groups, is looking to provide a humorous escape from it all. This Friday, the troupe will perform an improv show directly on Zoom, the same platform we're using to put together our newsbrunch show. I sat down with Hannah Schweitzer, the Liquid Fun member who was behind the show's creation. So Hannah, are you excited for this Friday? Yes, I'm really excited. So I did some research online, and you're the first ones doing something similar to this. Do so you consider yourselves pioneers?
10: <laughs> I don't know if I would go as far as a pioneer, but I do think that this is definitely a fun challenge that a lot of people would be afraid to take. I think that the reason we're doing this is when you're an improv college troupe, you don't have that much at stake. I mean, it's okay to have a bad show. It's not like our careers and money and lives depend on it. It's fun. We're just fooling around. And hey, maybe it'll work out. Maybe it won't. Um, But either way, we're just trying to cheer up our friends. And we know that our friends aren't expecting full-on professionalism from us. They're just expecting us to perform a good and funny show.
3: It's not just friends and people in Boston University. You've actually gone and put this on like a Facebook group and it now has about a thousand people interested or going to this thing. It's kind of, has it blown out of proportions, do you think?
10: <laughs> it's definitely blown out of proportion in a good way. Um, yeah, I think the reason for this is that even though we're all separated, it seems like a bunch of college students have really connected over this because we're all going through this weird shared experience of taking school online and being away from our friends and trying to have those fun college experiences um like through the internet
3: if this becomes a success you see look at fun doing other virtual shows like during the summer when you guys are far away from each other or other other breaks definitely
10: like we're gonna see how it goes and this is also an awesome way for us to keep up our shows from far away and if our show goes well hopefully we can do a show every month like we usually do on campus
3: Liquid Fun will make the Zoom link available early on Friday. The show will be open to everybody, but we will have a max capacity of 300 people.
2: And that'll do it for this edition of WTBU News Brunch. I'm Hannah Harn, hunkered down in Southern California.
3: And I'm Frank Hernandez, stuck at home in Puerto Rico. We usually end this News Brunch with an invitation to stay tuned to WTBU for all your news, music, and sports. But that's kind of hard to say. No Olympics, no sports at all, not even a pickup basketball.
2: But maybe, just maybe, if we wait, there might be a return to a baseball season, and the Red Sox might return to Fenway, and the crowd will once again sing Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline. But until then, all we can do is listen to this version of Diamond's classic, that and wash our hands.
1: Hi, everybody. This is Neil Diamond. And I know we're going through a rough time right now, but I love you. And I think maybe if we sing together, well, we'll just feel a little bit better. Give it a try, okay? Where it began I can't begin to know it But then I know it's growing strong It wasn't the spring And the spring became the summer Where I believe you'd come Along
6: hands, washing hands, reaching out,
1: don't touch me. I won't touch you, sweet Caroline. The times never seem so good. I've been inclined to believe they.